Hello again and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt Radio. I'm so glad you could join me. You know, we've all heard about heirloom or heritage flower and vegetable varieties. The varieties, when grown in isolation from other plants in the same species, become strains that come true from seed. That is, unlike new hybrids, the seeds produce the desired variety year after year. The plants grown by individual gardeners and farmers from seeds collected, saved, and sown year after year have often been handed down from generation to generation and shared with neighbors and friends and with Seed Savers Exchange. Seed Savers Exchange was founded years ago in order to conserve America's culturally diverse but often endangered garden and food crops. This is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to preserving these old plants by establishing a seed bank, a sort of museum for varieties. They sow and grow some heirlooms every year to renew the stock. Seed Savers also helps members trade seeds and offers a seed catalog to the public with about 600 varieties of flowers, annual fruits and vegetables, um, to all gardeners interested in trying some of the best heritage strains. My guest today is Toby Kane, Education Coordinator of Seed Savers. Welcome, Toby, to Ken Drew's Real Dirt Radio. Hi, Ken. Thank you for that great introduction. It makes me proud to work at Seed Savers Exchange. It's always good to hear about the work we're doing. So so I guess I got it right, right? <laughs> yeah, that was great. So, Education Coordinator, what is your role at Seed Savers Exchange? Yeah, so as the Education Coordinator here at Seed Savers Exchange, my primary um, objective is to let the public know how to save seeds and to inspire them to save seeds. And I do that in a variety of ways. Um, this past year, I helped facilitate the exchange, which is our member-to-member -member exchange of seeds. And we do that through a print publication called the Yearbook and also through a website called the Online Seed Exchange. And through that project, about 700 people offer seeds to our membership base, which is about 13,000 people. And they offer over 16,000 unique varieties of seed. And um, it just keeps growing and growing every year. And that's really the reason why Seed Savers Exchange got started, was to help people share old varieties of plants with each other. So in addition to facilitating that and answering people's questions about the exchange, I also host a variety of classes here at Heritage Farm, which is our headquarters in Decorah, Iowa. We have about 10 events every year, ranging from apple grafting classes to a spring garden school to seed-saving workshops that last multiple days that allow members and non-members to come to the farm and learn a lot about what we do. Um, I'm also working on different online publications, and I organized this project called the Community Seed Resource Program that reaches out to community groups who are saving seeds around the country. And we help about 100 of those community groups every year by giving them free toolkits that will help them either get started with a seed library or start a seed-saving garden or do other kinds of um, seed-saving initiatives in their communities. So um, I also get to plant a really nice garden here down <laughs> in our visitor center and, you know, just help out the staff as I, as I can. That's incredible. Uh, tell me a, a, more, a little more about the organization, its history and founding, how you got started. Um, Seed Savers Exchange got started in 1975, 40 years ago, um, with a woman named Diane Ott Whaley and her husband Kent Whaley. And Diane is from um, a little town here in northeastern Iowa called Festina. And um, she met Kent, and they were going to get married and move out west. And Diane was saying goodbye to her family and just kind of wrapping up her time here in Iowa. 
and she was spending some time with her grandfather. Her grandfather's dad came over to the United States from Germany, and um, when when her great-grandfather came from Germany, he brought a lot of plants with him, and one of those plants was a morning glory flower. And Diane remembers this morning glory flower being planted all over her grandparents' home, and it was planted by the porch, and so it shaded her in the summer. And she just played a lot on this porch and had really fond memories of this beautiful flower. When she got ready to leave home, um, she asked her grandfather for some seeds for this morning flower. She just thought they were beautiful, and they were going to remind her of home. And that's when her grandfather told her the story that these were actually a family heirloom flower that came from Germany. And Diane felt you know, immediately connected to her family in Germany, to these people she's never met, to a country she'd never been to, and she was really touched by, by that story and, and to have this memento of her family that she could take with her, even though she was going to travel away. Um, and so a few years after that, a few years after she got married to Kent and, and moved away from Iowa, her grandfather passed away, and he was in his late 80s, so, but um, obviously she was still upset about the, the loss of her grandfather, but she was also saddened um, that maybe this flower wouldn't be grown anymore. She was worried that, you know, if something happened to her or something happened to, to her family back in Festina, that this flower would just disappear. And so um, because of that, she reached out to a lot of different publications in the United States. Um, she and Kent wrote a lot of letters to the editor, to Back to the Land magazine, saying, hi, we're Diane and we're Kent, and we have this really wonderful morning glory flower that is Diane's family heirloom. We'd like to share it with people. And if you have similar heirlooms, please reach out and share them with us. Uh, we, we know there must be stories out there similar to ours. And um, they published one letter to the editor in Mother Earth News Magazine, just kind of just getting started back in the 70s. But that's the one that really caught people's attention. And about 30 people got back to Kent and Diane that first year. And they said, hi, you know, I'm Toby, and I'm from Southern Illinois, and I have this squash that's been in my community for a long time. Or I'm Ken, and I've been growing this wonderful tomato variety for a long time, and it's for my mother's family, things like that. So people wrote in with their individual stories, and they included their address so that people could get in touch with them and their phone number. And they traded about 100 different varieties of seed that first year. And um, Kent and Diane assembled everybody's information in a six-page little booklet and mailed it out. Year after year, more and more people found out about this exchange, and it started to kind of snowball. Um, originally, Kent and Diane just started this as a side project, and um, they had moved to Missouri from Montana, and they had started a family. They had uh, five children, and so this seed exchange was just kind of a, a little pet project that was going on the side. But as more and more people found out about the exchange, they started sending Kent and Diane seeds, not just exchanging them with each other. They thought, oh, these are two people who really care about the preservation of these old plant varieties. Um, Let's just entrust them with our seeds. And so I've seen pictures of Kent and Diane's house, and it is just, you know, as you can imagine, full of the brim with toys and furniture and clothes because they had five children, but also it's, um, it's just covered in seed packets. For a long time still, they just managed to do this in their, in their spare time. But then in the early 1980s, this gentleman named John Withy, who was from Maine, gave them his entire collection of beans. You know, if you think about somebody's collection of beans, I originally, or I, you know, initially think, oh, gosh, maybe he had 20 or 30 different kinds of beans. Um, but John Withy had been collecting beans and their stories for about 30 years, hmm. and he had amassed a collection of over 1,100 oh, different Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so his decision to give 
his collection, kind of his life's work, to Kent and Diane really moved them. Um, you know, they realized what an important treasure that was and, and how much trust um, how much trust John, Withy, and also other people from around the country had put into them to keep those varieties safe. And they realized, you know, this has turned into something that we could have never expected, but I think that we should make this our life's work. And um, after that donation of beans, they started to look for property. And Diane wanted to come back to Iowa to be closer to her family. And eventually, with the, the help of a couple of really generous friends, they were able to purchase this plot of land where we are today, um, originally starting with 240 acres and then expanding to the 890 acres we have today. And, uh, you know, they just kind of dived in head first. They, they planted about 700 varieties the first year that they were here. And we, we plant between 700 and 1,000 different varieties every year for um, seed regeneration and for research. Unbelievable. So it's, <laughs> yeah, so it's just grown and grown since um, it's really humble origins. And But we still remained a nonprofit. And, you know, of course, there have been lots of changes over the years, but um, it still feels like a family-run business. I have a lot of questions. And my first one is, what did that morning glory look like? Yeah, the morning glory is a really beautiful plant. It has kind of a, a very delicate teacup-shaped flower, and it's dark purple. Dark purple. Um, and it, it, yeah, it has these wonderful dark green heart-shaped leaves, and um, it still grows here on the farm. Diane plants it every year next to this large Amish barn, and we, we trellis it up the barn. It grows about 20 feet tall. 20 feet. Well, you make me think of something uh, while you were telling that remarkable story. Uh, I sometimes meet people who have incredible plants and they mm -hmm. they like to hoard them they don't want to share them uh because they're so special and they're they're so snobby proud of the fact that they have this <laughs> wonderful thing and i i think about hoarding versus sharing and the thing about plants is that they're treasures that you can reproduce and it's Absolutely. it's such a mistake to hoard because if for some reason something happens and you lose the plant it's gone forever so uh everybody should share yeah, exactly. That's a that's a great point. And we have we do have members in our exchange who they don't they don't really hoard, but they collect. You know, there are folks, especially um, with tomatoes, who just amass collections of two and three and five and seven hundred different kinds of tomatoes. But all of those people um, choose to share those varieties with with others in the exchange. And you know, we're getting to a point in our organization's history where people who joined us in the beginning are are really getting to the point in their lives where they can no longer garden. And um, we're finding that people have these large collections that, um, that thanks to their participation in the exchange, that they won't be lost. Mm. If you're a home gardener and you want to participate, uh, do you like, uh, you can't send a tomato in the mail to Seed Saver Exchange. So I know you have, must have directions that you offer for cleaning seed and drying seed. But can you tell me sort of a couple of examples of how you'd go about doing that? A home gardener might participate and also clean seed? Sure. So if, if you're a home gardener and you're listening to this show and you think, wow, that pepper variety that we grow is, is a family heirloom of ours, maybe Seed Savers Exchange would find it valuable. Maybe they would like to bring it into their collection. Um, we would highly encourage you to gather as much information about that variety as possible and then get in touch with our inventory technician. His name is Zach, and his email is just Zach, Z-A-C-H, at seedsavers.org. But before you sent any seeds into Seed Savers Exchange, you would have to clean them. And so in the case of peppers, you would want to put on gloves, and if it's a hot pepper, even put on a protective mask. 
um, peppers are one of the varieties of plants that we take a lot of special precautions with when we're cleaning seeds. And so you're going to want to put those gloves on and put um, maybe even just a small mask on to protect yourself from the oil called capsaicin that uh, is inside of the pepper, and it can really irritate your skin, and it's also a respiratory irritant. Luckily, with almost all other crop types, you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. But peppers, peppers, you would cut that. Eye protection, that, um, too. Yeah, eye protection, too, if it's a particularly hot pepper. you could. Uh, we do wear goggles when we're working with large, large quantities of peppers. So um, you can... You can actually take a ripe pepper that's turned to its final color and save the seeds from that pepper. Um, You would cut the pepper open. You can eat the flesh and just save the seeds. You'd take those seeds out, try to clean them as best you can under running water, uh, and then leave them to dry. We recommend leaving them to dry in a coffee filter for about a week, and those seeds will be dry around a week later. And if you can take a seed and snap it very easily between your fingers, um, it's dry enough. To, to store and then to send to us. You can also, if you have varieties of peppers that are drying peppers, so if you have some paprika peppers, you can actually leave those plants to dry and then you can save the seeds from them later. And by that point, the seeds will definitely be dry. For other plants like tomatoes, you will want to take that tomato, um, cut it in half, and then squeeze a lot of the pulp and the seeds into a cup and then let that ferment for two days until a small film develops on the top of it. And then you can rinse those tomato seeds and then again dry them on a coffee filter. And what we're doing there with the fermentation is kind of replicating uh, the process that would happen in nature. So naturally, a tomato would fall off the vine and then the tomato fruit would rot. And that takes away the gelatinous sac that surrounds each tomato seed. And it makes it easier to grow that seed the next year. Um, A lot of other dry-seeded crops like corn, like lettuce, you're just waiting for that plant to reach full maturity and then harvesting the dry seeds and they are ready to go. So um, we have, I I made a lot of different tutorials on how to save seeds and they should be going up on our new website very, very soon. We kind of did a website redesign this past year. Um, But if you just hang tight there, I wrote up examples about how to save seeds from about 50 different crop types. And we also have a really wonderful book that we just published last year called The Seed Garden, the art and practice of seed saving. And we worked on it for four years with the Organic Seed Alliance, and it's full of color pictures, and it's really a wonder. Um, and they're not paying me to say that. It's, it's actually a great <laughs> book, kind of like a coffee table book. And it just walks you through how to save seeds from about 75 different crop types. So, yeah, that's The Seed Garden, and you can check it out from your local library if you want or purchase a copy. Um, but a lot of seed saving is, is just really intuitive, following the cycles of the plant and noticing where the seeds are held. Um, and then, you know, the Internet has a ton of resources if you're not wanting to buy a book. Well, the bottom line is don't send wet fruit to Seed Savers <laughs> Exchange. Yeah, <laughs> don't pack up your tomatoes and send them in a box. No. We do have people sometimes um, come to the farm with tomato fruit. And, and tell us their story about it. And that's actually great because we get to see what the plant looks like. Um, and then we do encourage them to go back and save those seeds and send them to us. But don't send us your fruits and vegetables. Um, talk to us first to see if it fits our accessions policy. And then we can talk about uh, bringing that variety into our collection. You're talking about enormous numbers of different plants. And I'm thinking, so what, A, and B, don't we want something that's different or remarkable or especially delicious? We don't want to just save every seed. 
That's a great question. And it's, it's not a question that I get asked very often, but it's definitely something that we think about as we're looking at our collection. So kind of starting with that gentleman, John Withy, who gave us a collection of 1,100 beans, we, we, started, um, we started a seed bank here as we, as we first moved to the Decora. And that collection now numbers over 20,000 different varieties. And it costs a lot of money to maintain that seed bank. We have to make sure that um, we regrow those plants every so often. We have people on staff who are just researching the histories of them. And you might think, gosh, um, yeah, what's the point? Why, why save that many seeds? Well, a couple of years ago, we adopted an accessions policy. And that accessions policy kind of gives us an outline of seeds that we would like to be keeping in our collection. And so right now, we're going through the process of kind of taking some varieties out of our collection that don't fit our accessions policy. We're primarily concerned with old heirlooms and old commercial varieties and varieties that have a long history of being grown in the United States. You know, we have over 5,000 different tomatoes in our collection. Mm. That is a, that, that's a lot of diversity of tomatoes. And um, I'm sure some of them don't taste great, and I'm sure some of them are unwieldy. But we think that all of them have an intrinsic value, even if they're not the tastiest tomato um, here in Iowa when we grow them. In their microclimate where they were adapted, maybe in Maine or in California, they might grow and taste a lot better there. Mm -hmm. They might have a really wonderful story attached to them that we think is important to preserve just for the cultural history or for the culinary history. Um, or maybe those varieties of tomatoes have certain disease resistance that, um, that we don't know about, or, or maybe they're very drought tolerant or they will be able to survive in you know, these changing climactic conditions that we're being faced with right. today. So, so how do you store the seeds? Seeds like to be kept very cold and very dry and very dark. <laughs> um, and so we try, to, we try to, to give them an environment where they will kind of just lie dormant and not have very many changes in temperature or humidity or light. And so we keep them in a vault here at Seed Savers Exchange. Um, and it's underground, and we keep it at about negative 18 degrees Fahrenheit. And... Um, it's very dark in there. And so that's where they live. Uh, we also have two backup locations, one at the United States Department of Agriculture's National Seed Bank in Fort Collins, Colorado. And the second is um, at the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, and that is in Svalbard, Norway. Um, and the seeds, before they go into the vault, they're moisture tested. So we have somebody on staff who um, makes sure that they're dry enough because if the seed is not dry enough before it goes into that cold storage, um, it, uh, the free moisture in the seed can actually rupture cell walls and sure. then seed, make it unviable. So uh, almost any seed that from, well, you know, all the, almost all the varieties that we grow are annuals and most of them are from, I would guess, tropical or subtropical locations like tomatoes. So, mm -hmm. uh, th but those seeds, if they're dry, they can be frozen, you're saying? Absolutely. And tomato seeds are some of the longest living seeds. Um, even if you keep them very, very dry and in a dark, um, in a dark place in your home, they can last over 20 years. Um, if we, you know, when we grow out a tomato and we clean it and dry it and moisture content test it and then package it away and put it in our vault, we don't expect to grow out that tomato for 200 years. I'm thinking again about flavor, let's say. 
I've I've read books, old books. You read about varieties of things like pumpkins and and uh, sure. other squash and and melons especially is something I'm interested in because you read about or eat or pears too. I, I we haven't talked about the hardy tree fruits and I know you have mm -hmm. a big orchard there too. And I've for example with pears I read that uh, Thomas Jefferson had 200 varieties of pears that he grew, and pears were mostly eaten with a spoon. Uh, 200 mm -hmm. years ago and there's you know we don't know anything about that anymore but what what about some of those french melons and things like that what are some of if you can think of some discoveries that you've uh, come across that are especially remarkably delicious or, or special in that way we actually have two gentlemen on staff they're our evaluation team and it's their job to grow and evaluate about 500 different varieties every year and so they're taking measurements on the plant from from the beginning seed all the way to the mature adult plant. And then after that, they have the lucky job of getting to taste test them. <laughs> and they conduct taste tests throughout the year from um, on everything from spinach to rhubarb to lima beans to melons to watermelons and squash. Um, it's really, really a fascinating process. Sometimes they're doing it out in the field, but a lot of times they'll bring those, those varieties back and conduct taste tests here at the farm for everybody on staff. And um, the melons especially are, are really wonderful, and, um, and watermelons too. It's just fantastic, the diversity of flavor and the complexity of flavor that you can find in a lot of these old varieties. Um, I think one of our favorite taste tests every year is the tomato taste test. Mm -hmm. And we actually have an event here during Labor Day um, where we invite anybody to come out to the farm, and we usually have about 500 visitors come to taste over 60 different kinds of tomatoes. Um, and I would just have to ask Phil and Stefan, those, those eval guys, if they've come across any really unusual varieties. I guess in the last couple of years, we discovered this melon in our collection. It's called Mother Mary's Pie Melon. Hmm. And if you eat Mother Mary's Pie Melon straight, fresh, it's uh, pretty bitter, and it just doesn't have the wonderful, you know, creamy melon texture that you anticipate. But this melon was actually developed to be used in pies and to be used in preserves. It was meant to be cooked. Um, so there's just there's just a wonderful wealth of, of botanical and culinary information out there associated with these old varieties. And you go to most markets and you see three things. You know, you see one cantaloupe, and if you're lucky, and one honeydew and one watermelon. I do want to mention I'm speaking with Toby Kane, Education Coordinator for Seed Savers Exchange, and, and my mouth is watering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a sad time here in the middle of winter when we don't have giant gardens to go pluck fruit from, but... Soon here, we'll, we'll have a, a large diversity of flavors again. And it's a really wonderful place to, to come visit and to learn about different different flavors. Well, I, would, I do want to mention that there will be a link on the Kendrews Real Dirt Radio website uh, to Seed Savers Exchange. And uh, j just for if people are interested in more information or even visiting and, and things like that, what's the website address? Yeah, it's just www.seedsaver.org. Well, I've been speaking with Toby Kane, the education coordinator for Seed Savers Exchange, and we could talk for about three more hours, I think. But uh, no. th <laughs> thank you so much for introducing us to Seed Savers Exchange and get, getting me very excited <laughs> and uh, totally interested. And perhaps we'll talk again sometime. Again, that would be really, really nice. I hope that everybody out there is excited to plant their garden next spring. And even if you've never planted a garden, I would encourage you to start and to start by thinking about saving seeds. 
Um, this is only my second year working at Seed Savers Exchange, and my first year here, my first job was to plant our display garden, which has about 40 raised beds in it. And I had never planted a garden before, but I planted about 150 different kinds of plants, and they all did well. So um, I guess, yeah, plants want to grow. They want to turn from seed into plants. So I just encourage you all to get out there and get dirty. That's a great point. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Bye. Bye. Saving seeds from your own plants, that, that's really exciting, a kind of thrilling idea. I've, I've gone to people's homes where they have like bubbling uh, cups of tomato pulp, and, uh, and I, I, I know what they're doing. They're fermenting those seeds, but it's, it's good to hear exactly why. <laughs> it's not just a, a, an old gardener's tale of something to do that may or may not work. It, it's uh, pretty interesting. You go through a lot of things to get seeds to germinate, but we don't really think about cleaning seeds all that often or, or special things. I mean, the pepper seeds just, they pop right out, so that's great. But those tomato seeds, mm, got to clean them. And there's so many uh, plants that people grow year after year, saving seeds and sharing seeds. And there's a place to send those seeds so that you can share them with people all over America, and also they'll be saved pretty much forever. Join me again next week for another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt Radio. See you then.